Good morning. Good to see everyone here in this room and online. Uh, friends my age are beginning to have grandchildren. That's a little bit of an exaggeration. They are having the grandchildren, but it's actually not just beginning. It's been going on for a little while. I talked to one grandmother the other day who had had the opportunity to host her baby granddaughter for the first time in the home overnight. And she said that she and her husband were up all night long because every time the little one stirred in the bed, they had to run and check. And then the next day, the little one was crawling all over, and it took both of them all the energy and effort that they had to follow the little one around and keep her safe and enjoy her. And she said, we are just exhausted. And I said, I bet you'll never volunteer to do that again. And she said, oh, no, we want to do it this weekend. We're hoping she comes back right away. Because the joy of having a little girl fill the home with all that energy far outweighs the inconvenience that the adults in her life might have to go through. But not all adults have welcomed children in this way, and not all cultures have either. Many have tried to push children into the corner, either literally or figuratively, where they can't disrupt the neat and tidy universe that the people in charge have created. And Jesus tackles this problem head on. We're in a series called Passages, and we're working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, passage by passage. The passage this weekend is a transitional teaching in the life of Jesus. It comes between the popular crowd-pleasing sermons like the Sermon on the Mount and the sermons and lectures toward the end of Jesus' ministry that got fiery and oppositional and actually drew people to hate him and to want to crucify him. So right here in Matthew chapters 18 and 19, we find some intimate discipleship moments where Jesus sits down with his closest followers and talks to them about important personal topics in their important lives. The passage is Matthew 18, verses 1 through 5, and it's in your message notes. It's up on the screens. If you're following along in the YouVersion app, you'll find it there also. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a child whom he put among them and said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Children matter. Children matter. And if they are a nuisance to us, it's because they disrupt our organized adult world. And they have the power to disrupt because they are real people. They're real people. If they were toys, we could put them on a shelf and close the cupboard door. If they were pets, we could kennel them and train them to please. But they're not, and we can't. Children have their own divine, uh, divine dignity. They have their own questions, their own life mission, and their own unique identity. And many cultures are structured to ignore the value of children. In the ancient world, the divine dignity of children had not been grasped yet or talked about. Children often were seen as only half human until they reached their early teens, when they could be more useful to adults through labor or marriage, 
And in some languages, like the Greek of our New Testament, there are no pronouns attached to the word child. And so the child is not a he or she or her, but simply an it. And the child in this story is an it in Greek. Scholars wonder if the child was a girl because a girl would have made the most powerful illustration about what Jesus was trying to teach. That the weakest and the most vulnerable and least significant human being that you could possibly imagine is a perfect picture of what the kingdom of God is like. And here it is again the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew says over and over again. And we've learned in our Matthew study that Jesus was not referring to how you would get into heaven when you died. The kingdom of heaven, the phrase itself, literally means God's sovereign rule, saving rule, and it's beginning to transform people and communities into a new state of being. And participation in this kingdom is not going to be about the survival of the fittest. It's not a long evolutionary process where the strongest and the fastest and the smartest and the loudest and the angriest people get to the front of the line and are in charge in the kingdom. And so when the disciples asked who was to be greatest in God's kingdom on earth, we can reasonably assume that they had some thoughts like that on their minds. They knew what faith heroes were like. They had lists of them. And they naturally assumed that along with faith and hope, the heroes, the greats in the kingdom would have military abilities and strategic thinking and leadership talents and charisma. And Jesus just tosses all that out the window and instead he calls a little child, shy and vulnerable and unsure of herself, but trusting with clear, perfect eyesight, ready to listen, willing to be loved and to love and ready to learn and grow. And Jesus says, that's what true greatness is like. He says, go and learn about it. And furthermore, go imitate it. And here's what it means. It means being turned inside out. It means walking from the front of the line to the back. Or maybe you're in the middle of the pack and you're climbing a ladder. It means moving back down to learn, not up. It means changing directions. It means learning to look at life and this world and your God and especially your own self through a different set of lenses all together. And how scary is that? This kind of direction is intimidating to most adults. And it would have been to these strapping young male disciples To think that vulnerability is something to accept and to learn rather than to resist and deny. They've come to Jesus asking how to ascend to greatness. And Jesus is coaching them back down the ladder to learn again and to rethink some assumptions. He's teaching his lessons, his followers a lesson. And before we dive into what that might look like in our lives, I want to bring out, he's teaching a lesson in two parts. The first part of the lesson is he wants them to see that becoming like children is the gateway to becoming spiritually wise. And spiritual wisdom and character is what makes someone great in the kingdom of heaven. And secondly, he wants us to learn to imitate childlike vulnerability and to install it in our lives as a character quality. He doesn't have a cute 
uh, romantic vision about children. So here's another lesson. He's wanting to teach concern for the children themselves. First lesson is about our own character and our own growing. Second one, he wants to teach concern for the children themselves. He knows that children don't just play happily and eat their veggies and learn to climb trees and learn to read and then fall in love and get married and have babies of their own. He knows the world is a dangerous place. And the little ones who are the weakest and trusting and curious and willing are at risk in a dangerous world. And that's as true today as it was in Jesus's day and Jesus is concerned about it. And so he's teaching that life in the kingdom is for adults who change and become like little children. And then by extension, the kingdom will be fit for the little children themselves because the transformed adults will become welcoming and trustworthy. That's his vision. And so we wanna talk about that. How would that actually come to pass in the life of an adult in our day? I wanna talk about how to welcome a child or anyone else in Jesus' name. And this is hard. Because being a positive influence takes courage and effort and sacrifice. Raising a child or influencing well any vulnerable or trusting person is one of the most demanding tasks in life. And the way that we influence not only affects the generations to come, the little ones in our life, but it also in the most personal way will change our character. It will change our hearts and it will strengthen your soul. And so it really is a pathway to Jesus's kind of greatness. The first application this could have in our lives is that we accept the child's uniqueness completely. That's number one, accept their uniqueness completely. And this is a little bit of something to face because every child is unique. Does anyone care to challenge me on that statement? If we had microphone over here and said, come up if you want to challenge that. Would any parent walk up to the mic and say, I've raised several children and they're all exactly alike? No one would say that. Or if we invited the classroom teachers to the microphone, would anyone walk forward and say, all you need to do is pick one learning method, the one that you're best at, and then apply it to all the children and everyone will succeed. No one would say that. Everyone is unique and different. My son-in-law, Chris, is an identical twin. There are actually two Chrises, and one is named Devin. And we get a big kick out of laughing about how their voices sound the same, and they look the same, and they have a lot of the same ways of thinking. We mostly have fun arguing about which one might be smarter. But it's really fun to notice the differences, because we all know every person is unique, identical twins or not. I have four daughters, and they look a lot alike. Each one came out, and my husband Dave and I said the same thing. Oh my gosh, it's another one. Oh my gosh, it's another one, and yet another one. And everyone who visited the hospital said the same thing. But they're all really very different. Number one is a visual artist, and she's a jewelry designer. Number two is a musician and a teacher. We call these two crazy art girl number one and crazy art girl number two. And then number three kind of broke away from the pack. And uh, she is uh, um, an athlete and she's very talented with managing people. And then number four is my little intellectual. She's our, our head person and she's a, a young anthropologist and she's a writer. They're all very different and the Bible contains poetry and teachings that celebrate the uniqueness of every human being. 
The poet, uh, psalmist David writes, for you, God, formed my inward parts, and it's you who knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And then the Apostle Paul taught about this in several ways. In the book of Ephesians, he calls you God's masterpiece, God's workmanship, and your life is a living poem. Every person is unique, and this can be aggravating and challenging sometimes. It's hard to accept each other's differences, especially with children that we are responsible for. It would be so much easier if we could compare the children among themselves, pick the ideal personality, and have everyone conform. But we shouldn't do that, because the enemies of acceptance are conforming and comparing And a wise adult will put away the tools of comparison and conforming and accept uniqueness instead. And Jesus even tells about a compassionate father with two very different sons. And this father wouldn't stand for it when the older one compared himself favorably to the little guy. Instead, the father says, you're both welcome in my house. And each of them was very different. They each had very different ways of being naughty and aggravating to this compassionate father. And so how do we install acceptance in our life as a new life habit? I want to say that it's really hard. I think it takes a lot of practice and we're wired very differently. So I want to suggest throughout this little lesson, some action plans, some things we could start doing, because the way to form a new habit is to just start simple and start becoming the kind of person who accepts others. Can't do it all at once. So the action plan for number one is go on a nature walk. Find yourself some children or one child and maybe another person or two and pick up a leaf for each person in the group. And then talk about that with each person, why the leaf that you found that's unique and beautiful in its own way reminds you of the person that you're talking to. Action plan, go on a nature walk. And learn to teach acceptance in whatever circle you have influence. Okay, number two, affirm their value constantly. This can't be a one-time thing. Affirming value happens over and over again. And in order to do this, we must become spiritual teachers. Because affirming value is a spiritual education since our source of our human dignity is in God. Convincing another person of this is a spiritual lesson. And those spiritual lessons cannot be left to our youth pastors and our children's ministers alone. And teaching identity formation cannot be left to our classroom teachers and our coaches and our scout leaders alone. Now, is it good that some people are called to teach our children full-time, to use their talents to teach big groups of children full-time? Is that a good thing? It is a trick question, but the answer is yes. That is a good thing. Find those people and put your children in their care and thank them and treat them really well. But it can't stop there. We also must become spiritual teachers to the little ones in our lives. And this goes for all of us in the room, all of us. Deuteronomy 11, verses 18 through 20, God says, you shall put my words in your heart and soul. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and fix them as an emblem on your forehead and teach them to your children. Talk about them when you're at home, 
when you're away, when you lie down, and when you rise, and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. God's talking about teaching the lesson of value. Here is a spiritual lesson that you could teach. You could learn it and teach it to anyone who comes into your care. It's very simple in three parts. Number one, God made you. Number two, Jesus lived and died for you. And number three, the Holy Spirit is in you, lives in you. And it's so simple to come up with your own little customized lesson and the way you teach this to anyone who will listen. God made you. I think it's easiest to start out in nature. Be outside with children. Talk about the beauty of creation. Children naturally understand this and connect that to God made everything and God made you and it's all good. You teach that truth. And then you can teach that Jesus lived and died for that child. Teach about Jesus's values, like forgiveness and loving neighbors and sharing And then when the children are older, you can teach about Jesus' sacrifice. That Jesus stood up for what was right. And that he protected people who were being mistreated. And that this made powerful people mad. And it cost Jesus his life. But Jesus came not to be worshipped. Jesus came to serve. Jesus came to serve. That's how much Jesus loves you. And it cost him his life. And then... When children have a spiritual view of the world and nature and their own created being, and they understand the story of Jesus' teachings and sacrifice, and that he was raised from the dead, then we're only a a hop, skip, and a jump from being able to make that connection that the spirit of the living Christ lives in you. Right here, that's what's giving you power for living. And the child will recognize that they've had experiences of being able to tell. And you affirm those experiences and you teach them to watch for it and look for it. Know what it feels like and to have confidence in it that the Holy Spirit lives in you. And that's the spiritual lesson that affirms the value of a human being. And it's important that the child learns it from people in their personal life their grandparents and their children, uh, uh, their grandparents and their parents and their aunts and their uncles and their siblings. It's important that children hear us talk about that all the time. And then I would say that's even still not enough. It's also important that children hear this in community. They need to be around other adults that aren't raising them in the home and they need to hear those adults speaking the same message and teaching the same truths. And that's what they learn when they go to church and they go to camp and they go serve on a mission trip and they ride in a bus with a youth leader and youth crew. And these are people who feel called to affirm the value of our children. And we wanna place our children in their care as much as we can. So the action plan is to get involved in young people's lives with your presence and your attention. Get involved. Learn the spiritual lesson and be able to teach it to anyone who will listen. But then also take that step here at our church crossroads to say, I am committed to doing something at least once a year that serves the ministry of kids and students here at our church. And you could sign up to be trained and actually become a regular teacher in regular children's classrooms or a small group leader or teaching 
big event lessons for our students. You could do that, and there are a lot of amazing people who do. That's appealing to you, volunteer and get trained. But also we need everyone in the room to look at this like project one. We all need to do something to make kids camps happen in the summer. We all need to do something to make big events like the family spring fest that'll happen next weekend actually happen. And that's just donating, volunteering, one-time, one-off type involvement. But that's how we as a church can instill the value convince our children that they are made by God and they will come to understand that value. So the action plan is get involved. Okay, number three is to teach children responsibility. We love that one. We love it because we want responsible children and they drive us crazy when they're not being responsible. Here's what we do at my house when that happens. When someone is avoiding their responsibility, they may uh, be facing a problem and they are blaming someone else for the problem or themselves. I can't do it. I don't know how. It's too hard. Or someone might be avoiding a challenge and they're stuck in a bad habit or they learn, need to learn a new skill and they want you to do it for them, but you know they need to learn. You know, like, I like it when you tie my shoes. You tie my shoes. I'm too tired. So there are ways that we can coach our children to accept responsibility. First, we tell them, you got to accept the challenge. I mean, as long as you're resisting it, no good is going to happen here. So put your palms up and be accepting of this. This is yours. It's right here in your lap. And that means we don't blame anybody else for the situation, including yourself, because you're going to accept your, accept your role in this challenge. That's a huge step. And then very simply, we just teach responsibility. Break it down into two words. You have the ability to respond. God has given you creativity and you have talents. You've used them before in challenging situations and it got you somewhere good. Let's think of one of those times. How can you use your talents and your ability right now to learn or grow or make a difference in this challenging situation? And children will learn that responsibility isn't a dirty word. It's an opportunity to grow. Something good's gonna happen. And sometimes we have to coach them to have hope that there's more meaning in the negative events of your life than you may realize. That God is working for your good, even using the things that you don't like. And they will learn that, and they'll learn responsibility. So the action plan I have for you is to sit down with a young person and help them write a plan of responsibility, a plan to take charge of something using their talents, how are they going to go about that? And you can do this instead of struggling with a child and going around the track for weeks, sometimes months, sometimes years. You can get over the hump by writing an action plan with a young person and help them have the confidence to change and to grow. Okay, number four, very important. We have to learn to correct without condemning because correction's going to come as we welcome children and teach them. And we must do it without condemning. And the best advice I've ever heard on this topic comes from Brene Brown. It's called her Engaged Feedback Checklist. And the purpose of the Engaged Feedback Checklist is to prepare you to have a conversation with someone you're correcting without condemning that person. It's all about getting you ready to have the conversation. And uh, we could call it the the correct without condemning checklist, but it's all about being prepared. And I'm going to run through it. There are 10 of them. You're not going to have time to write them down. So I'll post them on the Crossroads website. 
there's a news tab. We have kind of a blog there, and I'll post a little article with the, re with the action plans and also Brene's engaged feedback checklist. But let's take a look at it. Okay, number one, I am ready to correct without condemning when I am ready to sit next to you rather than across from you. Number two, I'm ready to correct without condemning when I'm ready to put the problem in front of us rather than between us or sliding it toward you. Number three, I'm ready when I'm ready to listen, ask questions, accept that I may not fully understand the issue. Number four, I'm ready when I'm ready to acknowledge what you do well instead of just picking apart your mistakes. Number five, I'm ready when I recognize your strengths and how you can use them to address your challenges. Number six, I'm ready when I can hold you accountable without shaming or blaming. I wanna stop at this one for just a moment. When we have a conversation like this with someone, they're gonna feel nervous and intimidated and they're not gonna like the correction, who does? And so the tool that they'll, they'll that, uh, wanna bring out is all kinds of disruptive conversation in the, in, the, in the conversation it will get disruptive. That's just normal and natural. And when we as adults start to feel threatened because someone is resisting and they're not gonna cooperate and this is not gonna be easy for us, we are tempted to pick up the tools of shame and blame. And that is harmful in the life of the child. It's not helpful in the conversation. So if we can prepare beforehand that we're just not gonna do that, we're gonna remember their divine dignity and we're gonna treat them with, with full human dignity in the course of the conversation. Okay, next one. Number seven, I'm ready when I'm open to owning my part. Number eight, I'm ready when I can genuinely thank someone for their efforts rather than just criticizing them for their failings. And number nine, I'm ready when I can talk about how resolving these challenges will lead to growth and opportunity. Number 10, I'm ready when I can model the vulnerability and openness that I expect to see from you. And so we expect our children to be vulnerable and open and God calls us to be like little children in the kingdom of God. And so when we're ready to model that in any correcting conversation, something powerful is going to happen. And we are going to do great, great spiritual good. And you might be thinking, this sounds like a great way to approach a conversation with someone at work or with my spouse, but it seems a little elaborate for working with a child. And I would just say the most important thing we can do to welcome children in Jesus' name is to treat them with full human dignity. We're not really treating them like adults because we scale this to be appropriate and we speak in terms that are appropriate for them, but to treat them like with the same dignity we would treat our boss or a coworker is really important and powerful thing to do. Okay, number five. This ties it all together. We love them unconditionally. The sayings of Jesus throughout the Gospel of Matthew are really about loving one another with God's kind of love, even if the love is not returned. And that often happens because a person either can't 
return the love or they won't. Either way, unconditional love means that we show that love anyway. And we must trust in the power of God's love. We must believe it and trust it or we won't be willing to hang with it. And we can trust in it. The Apostle Paul said in his great hymn of love in 1 Corinthians 13 that love never fails. Love never fails. And three things are everlasting, faith and hope and love. And the greatest of the everlasting is love. It's great and it cannot fail. And so when we forgive and we don't keep a record of wrongs, or when we're patient with another person's faults, when we remain calm and centered and refrain from yelling or lecturing, then we are welcoming in Jesus' name with unconditional love and it cannot fail. It will produce fruit and it will have a result. Love always works. Proverbs 14, 26 says, Reverence for God gives a man deep strength. His children have a place of refuge and security. That's the vision. And we've run through some basics of how we can welcome children in Jesus' name. And everything we've talked about here, you can use to welcome adults and you can use it to welcome yourself. Acceptance, correcting without condemning, unconditional love and forgiveness are things we all need. And the truth is we adults have a lot of stress in our lives from trying to make our own way outside of the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is teaching an easier way. It's the way of wisdom. And it naturally leads to whole person well-being and whole community well-being. And participating in this Jesus way is, as always, our choice. But those who choose to will change the world, one well-loved child at a time, beginning with one's own very valuable self. I've mentioned before that I was raised by a single mother, and she had a job, as you can imagine, and it was full-time. And so we were taken to, or we went after school, to a babysitter's house in the neighborhood. And Mary Nell, the babysitter, was also a Sunday school teacher. And she was also a Bible club teacher, and she hosted it once a week in her house after school. And one day, Mary Nell was teaching about the kingdom of God, and she was talking about the Good Samaritan. And she said there was a man who was attacked by bandits on the road, and he was sick and almost dying on the side of the road. And several people passed on by. But one person stopped and helped the man and got him to a hospital and paid the bill and even looked in on him. And she said, that's what Jesus is like. He cares. And he wants all of us to be that kind of person. And she said, if you want to be that kind of person, you need to open up your heart and invite the spirit of Christ into your life because that's how you will change. And that's where the power comes to be that kind of person. And uh, she said, we're going to bow our heads and we're going to close our eyes. And if you want to open up your heart and invite Christ in, raise your hand. And so I raised my hand real high. And then the prayer ended and we put our hands down. And she said, All, anyone who raised your hand, I want you to come with me to the other room. And I want to talk to you about the decision that you've made. And I want us to pray together. 
And, she, and three children raised their hands. Three children stood up and followed Mary Nell. I did, my sister, and my brother. So we walked to, to this other room with her, and uh, we prayed out loud with her, and she explained the significance of what we had, had done. And then the end of the day came, and we were waiting for my mother to pull up, and when I saw her car, the thought flashed through my mind, and I said to my sister and my brother, I don't think we should say anything about this. Can you guess my birth order? I'm number one. My little sister, number three, got right into the car, and before the doors were closed, she said, hey, mom, have you ever asked Jesus into your heart? And my mom said, I don't know what you mean by that. And I don't remember what happened next in the conversation, but I do remember the next chapter in the story. My mom went to work, and she was very curious about what my sister had said to her and what my sister had asked. And uh, so she sought out a coworker who was known for sharing her faith openly. And Virginia sat with my mom and explained how powerful or significant it can be to intentionally or deliberately open our lives up to Christ, to pray out loud about that, to ask for that out loud, for God to come in and fill us and walk with us, and to share that with another human being, that it can be a very powerful thing to do. And my mom picked us up uh, at the end of the day the next day, and we got in the car, and she said, I want you all to know that I prayed the prayer. And so our family um, deliberately became Christian at that point in time. And then we accidentally became evangelists because there were other children. We had friends, and those kids followed us to church, and they followed us to camp, and they got involved, and naturally there were many parents who followed and there were many prayers that were prayed, and there were many lives that were turned inside out for the better. And the catalyst for this mini revival was Mary Nell, who welcomed children and taught about the kingdom of God. And when someone welcomes a child in Jesus' name, a whole world opens up. Whether that um, is a child like you receiving or like me, receiving Christ for the very first time, or whether it's one of those countless times throughout your life that you open your heart instead of close it and you say yes to God, to whatever spiritual step is next in front of you. Every time we open up like that, the world is changed. The spirit moves. And it's like someone took a stone and tossed it into a still, still pond. And those ripples begin to move out. And they continue moving and moving even after we stop watching the action and long after we forgot about the stone. Children are valuable and they have inherent dignity in God's kingdom. And God is calling each of us to value them and to imitate their wonderful ways. Let's pray together. Would you join me? God Almighty, we thank you for your creativity. We thank you for your power and for your goodness. We thank you for calling us to this kind of life instead of a life of power and domination and competition. We thank you for the invitation, and yet we know it comes with a cost on our lives. And so we come before you and... I would just encourage everyone in the room, if your next step is to open up your heart and say yes to God, 
to the Spirit of Christ for the first time in your life, know that that is significant and a whole new world will open up. And I encourage you to pray that in your heart. Or perhaps your spiritual step has to do with what we just heard, to make a bigger difference in the kingdom of God by welcoming children and investing in the next generation and learning some of these spiritual skills. And if that's your yes, I encourage you to deliberately say it in the space of your own heart. God, thank you for all the yeses in the room and all the openness. And we ask that you would do more than we could hope or imagine with our willingness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.